Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Over the last decade, investors have targeted a new asset class, single-family homes, which they buy and convert into rentals. That means that ordinary people trying to buy are in competition with investors who didn't have to go get a mortgage. The companies claim that they only buy a small percentage of homes in any given market, but because they use shell companies, it's hard to know for sure who owns what. Now, a real estate appraiser has put together an accounting of the holdings of just one large landlord, and it's thousands of homes in Sacramento alone. We talk with him and experts on what corporate purchases are doing to the housing and rental markets. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Let me just read to you from the website of Invitation Homes, a massive buyer of single-family homes across the country. Back in 2012, home leasing options were slim, they write. There were only mom-and-pop landlords and a few regional leasing companies. No one could deliver the consistent, worry-free way of life that our founders envisioned. Seizing on this opportunity to lead a national leasing revolution, Invitation Homes was born. Since then, now this is me talking, they've amassed a portfolio of 80,000 properties, including a large number in California. And Invitation Homes is not the only large-scale investor in single-family homes. Several other firms backed by Wall Street money are in the same business around the country, the very definition of the corporate landlord. And that's led some housing activists and now congressional Democrats to wonder if such companies shouldn't be restricted from aggregating these huge portfolios of homes that would otherwise be owned by mom-and-pop landlords or regular owner-occupiers. But we all know there are lots of things wrong with the way our housing market works right now. We want to dig into what we can know about what these companies are doing and what effect they're having on the possibility of everyday people owning their own homes. And we have some new data courtesy of our first guest. Ryan Lundquist is a residential real estate appraiser and housing analyst in the Sacramento area. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks so much. Honored to be here. Yes. Why don't you give us, you know, I I tried to give the big background for Invitation Homes, but when did Invitation Homes kind of move into the Sacramento area, which you've looked closely at? 
No, sure thing. So in 2012, um, I was following the market closely then, and I started to notice that what in the world is happening? There's one company that seems to be on title for all these purchases in various neighborhoods, and there's a lot of them, and they're all cash. Like, what is going on? And it turned out that in 2012 and 13, especially, you know, this one company came in and bought, you know, thousands of homes in Sacramento and really across the state, you know, purchased um, mm-hmm. at least over 10,700. That's probably a conservative estimate, but I recently put these all on a map to sh- sort of show which neighborhoods they're located in. Mm. So when you take a look at that map, you know, with your kind of Sacramento eyes, like what do you see? Well, What's stunning, I think, first of all, is just to see the cluster because a map hasn't been seen like this before in Sacramento and uh, it's very sobering. And and honestly, I think a lot of residents get angry because they think, wow, there's 50 in this one neighborhood or 25 in this other one or, you know, 100 in this zip code. And so um, it's it's very, very stunning in um, in that regard because they're clustered in typically uh, more affordable markets, first-time buyer neighborhoods, um, you know, and they really targeted areas with, you know, three and four bedrooms with strong rental demand and, you know, places where people need to live. And so um, they're very strategic. And and so they avoided um, high dollar areas and the bulk of what they purchased was in Sacramento County um, and, you know, some in other outlying counties. Hmm. So when we talk about, you know, three, four bedroom home in an affordable community, I mean, these are family houses. These are these are uh, homes that uh, people are moving in, you know, either with multi-generational household with, you know, grandparents or, you know, just their own kids, things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Single family detached units, uh, ranch, uh, either one or two stories, you know, typical tract subdivision homes, you know, conforming They're you know, not buying stuff on acreage or, you know, weird mm-hmm. stuff, um, awkward stuff. It's really, you know, your, your plain housing units that, you know, typical folks live in. It's so interesting. Um, so one of the reasons we haven't seen a map like this for Sacramento, or really for most places, um, you know, some areas of the Bay Area have gotten the anti-eviction mapping project has put some things out like this. But at Sacramento and almost everywhere else in the country, we don't know exactly who owns what. what. Why is that? Because it's all public records, right? All these purchases. So why is it difficult to actually get this data? They're very challenging to track, uh, invitation homes, and really about any investment fund. Um, For instance, in Sacramento, they have about 50 to 60 names under which they bought under. And so it would be almost impossible to actually know every single one of those names. And so um, what I ended up doing, I actually took a backdoor way into the data, and I looked at their tax billing address, which is located in Dallas, Texas. And so I searched every property in California with that has that tax billing address. Now, they could have other properties under a different address, but this just accounts for basically 10,700 units. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, it, they're very, very challenging to track otherwise, because um, no one's going to have access to, you know, that many um, uh, DBAs are doing business as. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that the big corporate landlords will say, and this is correct, is that they only own a tiny amount of the overall U.S. housing stock, right? But what kind of density do they have in the neighborhoods that they went big on in Sacramento? Like, are we talking every fourth house, every 20th house? Like, what are we looking at? 
Uh, you know, I don't have that stat calculated. I just know that, you know, when I zoom in on the map, there are a lot of black dots signifying where they purchased. And I think that, you know, when we obviously when we look at California as a whole and, you know, 10,700 units, that's a drop in the bucket compared to 14 million, you know, but we have to realize that when it's concentrated in one neighborhood, that does take away from uh, buyer dem- or buyer opportunity and, and buyer supply, and so I think it's it's almost an awkward comparison when we look at the whole entire state because I have a feeling that residents in those individual neighborhoods they're the ones that would have a different perception, um, mm-hmm. you know. Because like I said, these these units don't affect you know the high end market. You know these companies didn't buy on the coast. Um, they basically avoided the middle of California, and it's kind of the greater Sacramento region stretching into some portions of the Bay in Southern California. Yeah. Uh, We're talking about the impact of corporate landlords on California's housing and rental markets. Up first, we've got Ryan Lundquist, a certified residential appraiser and a housing analyst from the Sacramento area. You know, we'd love to hear from you. If you're in Sacramento and you're a tenant or you've been trying to buy into the market, like if you're just someone who has encountered, you know, invitation homes or another corporate landlord, we'd love to get your uh, take on that. You can, of course, email forum at kqed.org or you can uh, or you can give us a call here at the station um so one of the things that i'm curious about is that you know invitation went on a buying spree you know some some years ago right and then they kind of kept buying a little bit through the 2010s but they've largely stopped buying from your perspective as an appraiser does that mean that the sacramento market has kind of been structurally changed because some thousands of homes are off the market, you know, they've been turned into permanent rentals? You know, I think in some way, yes, this has definitely affected the market. I'll say um, when they first started purchasing, they were overpaying maybe 10 to 15,000 per unit, which was, you know, two to 3% at the time. It's amazing how low prices used to be in 2012. But, and so they affected the market in that way where um, I think prices really started to go up probably faster than they would have had they not been here. But yeah, I mean, we definitely feel the effects of the missing units now, Um, you know, but at the same time, to be fair, I wouldn't pin the lack of affordability on only invitation homes. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to sort of vilify the big bad investor and then sort of, I think, give legislators um, a pass for not, you know, passing legislation to create more units. And so I think that that's a fair way to look at it. But yeah, I mean, this absolutely doesn't help, um, you know, at least for um, the the, on the buying side. Yeah. You know, could you compare, you know, the impact to say, Airbnb, you know, we hear a lot about that uh, in the Bay Area, you know, people um, taking units out of the rental market and, uh, you know, traditional rental market or even out of, you know, um, selling it, but just like keeping it as an Airbnb. How would you compare the impact there? So uh, we don't have a vast Airbnb market in Sacramento, but I I think that it it feels somewhat similar in that... um, you know, people are beginning to view housing as um, not just a place to live, to rent, to buy, but, you know, how can I make money off of this in terms of institutional investor or, you know, turn this residential property into a hotel? And so it definitely has a similar vibe in that regard. Um, 
And I think it's um, it's unprecedented anyway for um, Wall Street to, I think, be salivating over residential real estate like this. And so um, it's new territory with both Airbnb and, um, you know, I think Wall Street investors. And so, um, you know, imagine, like I say, I mean, imagine if the level of buying like this, you know, happens five, five times over over the next five decades. Then that's when mm-hmm. I think we step back and go, wow, what, you know, what it what does America look like? And, you know, how does this really affect affordability over the long time, um, long term? And I, I think that's where the, the real questions lie. Yeah. You know, I mean, some people do argue that these kind of big corporate landlords do provide more rental options for, for tenants who might be, you know, struggling to secure a loan. You know, interest rates are quite high now or, or just to, to put the money together. Um, on the ground in, you know, the kind of real estate world of, of Sacramento, are you, do you hear good things from people too? You know, it's not all just one thing. And so there's definitely horror stories. And I think that's been well publicized in the media. But there are certainly tenants who have been happy with um, invitation homes. And um, there's also, I I think on the tenant side, if tenants do have more options, that's actually a positive for tenants. And so I think that that's something that we have to um, look at. In real estate, there's often a positive or a um, bias towards only buyers and sellers. But we have to realize that nearly half the population population uh, rents. And so, you know, let's let, not leave them out for uh, in the conversation. Yeah. You know, um, around the state, you know, Imitation Homes hasn't only bought um, in Sacramento. Where were you able to sort of plot their, their other big, um, you know, investment areas? So Los Angeles County uh, took the cake. You know, they have over 3,000 units there. Uh, Riverside was actually second with uh, just over 2,300. And then, you know, San Bernardino, Solano, Ventura, Placer, San Diego, um, those were all sort of, you know, the big areas. But I think, you know, when going really, you know, LA, Riverside, Sacramento, San Bernardino, those are the dominant ones. And then, you know, Bay Area, Solano um, also has, um, you know, almost 800 units. Mm. Yeah, I've seen there like, you know, in Concord and some, some places like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're talking about the impact of corporate investment on California's housing market. With us to discuss the critical issue is Ryan Lundquist, a certified residential appraiser and housing analyst from the Sacramento area. We want to hear from you. I mean, do you live in Sacramento? Is Invitation Homes your landlord? Have you had difficulty buying a home? you know, in Sacramento. You can email your comments to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'd love to hear your story. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the impact of corporate investment on California's housing market. We're going to get to your calls and your perspectives on this. We are uh, joined by Ryan Lundquist, a certified residential appraiser. He's a housing analyst in the Sacramento area, and he's put together um, a pretty incredible map of all of the homes that Invitation Homes, the big corporate landlord, owns. Ryan, what's the uh, website where you have that? It's on your, uh, on your blog, right? At SacramentoAppraisalBlog.com. Yeah. So if you want to see the map that we've been sort of referencing, you can go um, take a look at that. I want to add a, another guest into our discussion. Alana Samuels is economic correspondent at Time Magazine. Welcome, Alana. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hey. So a few years ago, um, you wrote extensively about Invitation Homes. You even visited some of their properties in Sacramento. Can you give us a little bit of the background of like, how did this new phenomenon develop? Like, why do we have corporate landlords like this now, but we didn't say in 2010? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, you know, we all know about the foreclosure crisis that hit places like California, especially hard. Um, and there were just all these homes that had been foreclosed that really no one wanted. And the government was trying to figure out what do we do with these homes? Um, and it had this idea of, well, why don't we just sell them in bulk to investors who will buy them and rent them out to people who maybe, you know, got displaced by the housing crisis or are looking for rentals. Um, and so the federal, a bunch of government agencies basically Like your kind of Fannie Mae gonna, type agencies? Right, exactly. Decided that they were going to try to get these properties off the government's books and sell them to investors, which... You know, it didn't seem like a terrible idea because they just didn't want these properties to just sit there forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like when you say they like sold them in bulk, like they set up like a special program so that they could have access to these foreclosures or like how did that? Yeah. I mean, usually you would have to buy them one at a time like anyone else does. Um, and they just basically made it easier for them to sell buy a bunch at a time because what, you know, a Black Rock isn't going to want to just go buy one home in Sacramento, you know, time after time. Mm-hmm. They would go and buy, you know, hundreds or or more um, just because it makes more sense um, for for scale, basically. Yeah. How did the government sort of evaluate, like, was this an effective intervention? Like, do they think it was effective? I mean, I think they thought it was an effective in that it, I think it was about $36 billion spent on more than 200,000 homes. Mm-hmm. So I think you could argue it maybe helped turn around the housing market, um, or maybe they would argue that. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It's homes that who, who knows what what happened otherwise. So, it, you know, it's hard to it's hard to point fingers at this policy saying it was a terrible idea, but mm-hmm. you can certainly see that maybe the effects were not what they had anticipated. Yeah. You know, Ryan Lundquist, just to bring you in on this, I mean, you were you were there kind of watching this. And would you say that, you know, Invitation and the other corporate landlords, like that they came in and, and saved the day? Like, was that your perspective on it or is it more complex than that? 
Well, I'd say yes and no, because by the time they came in in 2012, we were already starting to see the market heal. Okay, now about 60% of sales were still distressed. So they, they were either bank owned or short sales in, in, uh, the, in the second quarter of 2012. But in 2009, that number was 84%. And so mm-hmm. what was happening is that the market was starting to heal and starting to um, absorb these distressed units. But what happened when they did come in, I think on the positive side, is that, you know, the lines on my graph just go down so sharply where um, we basically saw uh, bank-owned sales and short sales really begin to disappear in a very short period of time. And so, yes, they exacerbated the issue, but I would say I think they crowded the market in a sense. There were people that were able to buy and that would have bought, um, whether they're individual owners or small mom and pop investors, and they crowded on the court steps and everything on MLS. And so, um, you know, so yes and no. Yeah. You know, Alana, um, one thing that I loved about your reporting on this was that on the one hand, you went and you talked to a whole bunch of people who were living uh, as tenants in invitation homes. And on the other side, you went and you listened to what invitation was telling uh, investors about how they were going to, you know, increase their their bottom line, not just their top line. Um, what did you learn from, you know, doing the two sides of that reporting? Yeah, it was interesting to hear and, and read their earnings reports, you know, not just invitation, but also American Homes for Rent. And they're really just kind of imagining a new way of being landlords. I think remember one of the phrases that really stuck with me was, you know, we have to educate tenants that there are going to be annual rates uh, rent increases. So they just kind of had this idea of like, hey, no one has really done this in real estate, really scaled this and done this on a national level. But because of technology, we can do this and everyone can make a lot of money by by renting people houses. And, you know, I think if you're an investor, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's bring in, we actually have an investor on the line here. Um, Stephen in Berkeley. Welcome. Um, yeah, first time caller, long time listener. Welcome. And I want to say I love the um, the energy you've brought to the show since coming. I also want to thank your guest, uh, Ryan. And is it Alana? Um, you yeah. know, so I'm a professional institutional investor. I run portfolios. And I wanted to present the other side for a moment. Um, there's been a lot of uh, harsh um, rhetoric about private equity. But as an institutional investor, we looked at this category very seriously in 2008 and 2009. And it seems to be a category that solved the problem not, rather than creating the problem. We were looking at communities, for example, at um, Pittsburgh and Bay Point, mm-hmm. um, far out towards the Delta, where great numbers of homes have been uh, built and not sold. And they were being devastated by vandalism, wear and tear without being rented out. Um, and those communities and the few buyers that had committed were suffering. And so small investors, um, and I would call it small institutional funds, particularly 08, 9, 10, come up and become proof of concept. The larger funds come in uh, 2011, 2012, 2013, when they see, hmm, this was a good um, uh, project for funds at 25 and 50 million. Let's do it with a billion dollars. But that's true of a lot of private equity projects. At first, it's an interesting solution to a problem. Mm. Um, Private equity funds buying up um, retiring doctor's practices who want to go on. Now they're bulking them up and turning them into kind of health monstrosities. But at first, 
it's an interesting solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to regulate that. The market's going to first do right, and then eventually, when they proliferate, occasionally do wrong. I wanted to present that. Yeah, no, Stephen, it's totally fascinating. And I think the historical development of, of this, I, I really appreciate you bringing that perspective. I mean, is there a level of, like, where do you think we are now on that uh, on that kind of arc that you just presented? Like, are we into the, the part yeah. where it's going wrong? Yeah, no, I mean, so here's the interesting thing about, about this. Most of these funds, and I haven't studied invitation in particular, but those these funds are duration-based. So if you start buying things up in 2012, 2013, 2014, those funds aren't forever funds. They're supposed to be sort of five to 10-year vehicles. And so they'll come out of the market. So the comment now is they're not in the market now. Well, they don't, it doesn't make economic sense for them to be in an overbid market. Mm. Let the market right itself. Let the market become overbought and fall again. So in, in, in a funny way, sometimes people blame short sellers. But sometimes they're the only people willing to sell stock when things are rising quickly. So I I think in many ways, some of this problem may unwind as the funds come to maturity and the new buyers say, hmm, the opportunity is no longer there. Interesting. Thank Hey, Stephen, appreciate that uh, perspective. Thanks for the uh, first time call. Uh, I always love that. Um, I want to, you know, let's go right back to the phones. Let's bring in uh, Denise in Sacramento. Welcome, Denise. Uh, good morning. Uh, I live in Sacramento now. I used to live in Woodland Hills mm-hmm. where um, I lived on the flatland, but it was definitely a, a middle class neighborhood and longtime residents. That neighborhood now, every home pretty much there is worth a thousand, a million dollars just because of the, you know, inflation and the location. But during the, um, was it 2012 recession, mm-hmm. people got scared. I had a neighbor who didn't have to sell. He was not in foreclosure. He had a job, but I think he just got concerned. So he sold to invitation homes um, for, I think, probably maybe a little above the market price. Mm-hmm. And my, my thinking was Invitation Homes thought that was a good investment opportunity, better than the stock market at the time, with the plan being, you know, hold on for five years until the market turns, and then they'll hopefully they'll sell and go away. Anyway, they did not sell. This small two-bedroom, one-bath house was renovated in the interior, but and they got tenants in. More than not, more often than not, the tenants did not take care of the front or the backyard, wasn't watered. It wasn't mowed. The weeds were got to waist high before I'd finally find uh, a number to call and get someone to pressure the tenants to fix the lawn. Mm-hmm. But more than anything, to me, the effect on the neighborhood, the effect on the tenants was even the good ones who were great would have been wonderful neighbors who really wanted to buy the house. Invitation homes would not agree to sell for any price. Every year, the rent went up 10%. And so within two years, a tenant would say, you know, we can't afford to live here anymore. We have to move. So that's what would happen. It was a churning of the tenants. No no sense of uh, neighborhood. Yeah. Well, a decreasing sense of neighborhood as a result, which I think was really sad. It's, I think it's abusive. I hope it, um, I hope more cities can find a way to prohibit this kind of, of buying and it takes away, to be, it takes away from the housing market available to mm. first-time homeowners 
and it affects the quality of the neighborhood. Yeah. Denise, what, what a fascinating story, and thanks for presenting it in its, in its fullness. I, just fascinating to hear all the different elements of how it might be affecting different populations. I mean, I think, uh, Alana, I want to come to you first on um, something that Denise mentioned, which was the uh, raising of the rent. Um, that did tie in kind of pretty directly to the corporate strategy of at least invitation homes um, in your in your reporting. Yeah, that's right. I think that's something that they said to investors that, you know, we're going to raise a rent rents every year. Um, and, you know, one quote that, that I remember was they said this has been a very passively managed industry. Mm-hmm. So instead of kind of sitting there passively and saying, you know, we're just going to kind of see what happens, they're going to really be aggressive about about um rent increases. I think what was frustrating to tenants is that those rent increases didn't often lead to better service or it's not like they were getting anything more, right? They were still just getting the house. And sometimes if something broke, it wouldn't even get fixed. And so I think that was how the companies did pretty well, but I think it ended up being pretty frustrating Mm -hmm. for tenants. Uh, Ryan, then I want to go to you on another aspect of, of Denise's call, which was, you know, what happens if and when these places do decide to sell, right? And also tying in Stephen, our earlier investor, like if Invitations Homes were to sell in Sacramento, a large part of its portfolio, I mean, that would have a huge effect on the local market, no? It would, but I'll back up and say that I've been hearing this for over 10 years that, you know, they're going to flood the market and this will change things. And what if they don't sell? I think that's the bigger mm-hmm. question. And they seem poised to hold their um, inventory more than anything. And so my observation through the years, um, both nationally and locally, is that they've sold very few units. They mm-hmm. sort of trim the fat, so to speak, and sell some non-performing assets for whatever reason. And once in a while, you'll, you know, a few will pop off um, you know, on MLS and then people will be like, oh my gosh, they're gonna sell. And you know, what's happening? But it's really just trimming those non-performing assets. And so, um, you know, and and so I think that's something very fair to say. They're doing really, really well. They're sitting on both profound uh, equity growth in terms of values going up over time, and they're sitting on profound rental growth, okay? Uh, One thing I want to note is that they did re-enter the market in 2021. And so um, after being dormant, um, now it wasn't buying on a massive scale like 2012, nothing like that, but just, you know, 20 here and there and such. And so, but then the last unit they purchased, as far as I can tell, was uh, summer of 2022, and they haven't bought anything since. And so I think this premise that, you know, they're only, you know, they only bought years ago, it, you know, it, it's kind of maybe been debunked by their activity. And I would expect that um, a couple things that they would buy again. And if the math worked and the economics worked, um, but um, but also that you know they would continue to um, you know hold units because they're just in a huge position of advantage. Um, I, I could be wrong over that, but um, yeah. it's just sort of they've been very smart. I would be really really surprised for them to you know dump two thousand properties on the market at once because they they've been really really smart whether people like them or not from this point uh, from you know over the past decade. And if they did exit ever, they would very likely be smart also. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the equity growth that they've had. I mean, the values of these homes must, you know, over this period of time, given how they were purchased and uh, distressed properties in particular neighborhoods that we'd probably call gentrifying neighborhoods now. I mean, you're talking maybe 2x, 3x, like what would you say? 
Oh, well, yeah. I mean, um, in Sacramento County, for instance, um, you know, the median price, um, you know, a lot different um, here in Sacramento, but um, this last month it was 521,000. Um, you know, in 2012, it was 160,000. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're talking very, very significant growth on what is that 350 or so. Mm. Alana, you know, a listener has a, uh, a question, which I think is really fascinating, given some of your other work on, you know, poverty and economic issues in the country. A listener writes, could you discuss the relationship between corporate ownership of single family homes and the larger trend of the suburbanization of poverty out of the core of American cities? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I've definitely written about the suburbanization of poverty. I think these are two slightly different um, subjects, though, just in that, from my experience, when poverty moves to the suburbs, it's often in, you know, hotels or motels. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think you could argue that maybe it's a lot harder for people to build um, wealth and equity in the way that they used to, you know, 20, 40 years ago by buying a home mm-hmm. because the housing market is so expensive. Um you know, whether or not you can blame that on corporate ownership or not, I think depends on your perspective. Um, but I think I think they are a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one thing we haven't gotten to, Lana, is how tenants said the actual sort of repairs. Again, if we've been talking about if kind of the pitch is we're a professional leasing company and we're going to come in and we're going to have like a high-tech platform that's going to allow you to file for maintenance stuff, like... Has that has that been borne out, or was it in the when you were doing this reporting? No, most of the people I talked to were really, really frustrated, and they couldn't even get through to the companies, you know, to to file a complaint. But they'd say, you know, this is a problem; it needs to be fixed. We can't just put a bandaid on it. And the company would not do anything. And then, you know, this one family I visited, they kept having this flooding problem, and the company just didn't do anything about it until eventually the the whole house flooded. And, you know, that's something that's going to be a lot more expensive for the company to fix eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, at the time I had some concerns about the business model thinking if they're just going to defer maintenance on all of these homes because it costs a lot to, mm-hmm. you know, to maintain a home, how is that going to end out, turn out in the end? Um, so far, it seems like they're doing just fine, <laughs> but you do have a lot of unhappy tenants. And and I kind of wonder if, if their reputation Mm-hmm. Uh, will be a problem for them yeah. at some point. A uh, comment from listener Sammy writes in to say, the data being shared about corporate ownership in the Sacramento area is very validating for me and my family. After the 2008 recession and losing our home, we were ready to buy in 2013. We were looking for a livable fixer in the charming and affordable older neighborhoods in Sac, but all the homes we attempted to purchase were quickly uh, swooped up by cash investors. This went on for over a year. Finally, there was a HUD home in one of the neighborhoods up for auction that cash investors could not purchase. That was our only opportunity, and we took it. We're talking about the impact of corporate investment in California's housing and rental markets. With us here, we're joined by Alana Samuels, economic correspondent at Time Magazine, as well as Ryan Lundquist, a certified residential appraiser and housing analyst from the Sacramento area. After the break, we're going to bring in Alex Lee, California Assembly member representing the 24th District. And we want to hear from you. You know, do you live in Sacramento? Have you encountered invitation homes in some way? You can email us, form at kqed.org, or give us a call, 866-733-6786. We'll be back with more right after the break.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about corporate investment in California's housing market, in particular focusing on Invitation Homes, uh, which owns many uh, thousands of homes in the state of California. Joined by Ryan Lundquist, who's an appraiser uh, in Sacramento who made a map of uh, Invitation Homes uh, investments here in the state. Also joined by Alana Samuels, economic correspondent at Time Magazine. You know, one listener writes... You know, uh, what, if anything, is the state doing to level the playing field against this latest form of corporate greed? Companies like this will carefully calculate how much they can charge for rent, which will be aimed at middle income workers and only exacerbate affordability for the lowest income renters. And luckily, we have Alex Lee, California Assembly member representing the 24th District. That's, uh, you know, some Santa Clara, Milpitas, Fremont, Newark, small portion of Western uh, San Jose. Thanks so much uh, for joining us, Alex. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, that's Northern San Jose. Northern San Jose. Sorry about that. So Northern. <laughs> that that San makes Jose more. I was about to say that makes more sense. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, t- talk to me, Assemblymember Lee, about you know what what how you would uh, do something about this. Like what are the sort of uh, slate of legislative options here? Yeah, definitely appreciate the conversation this morning. I appreciate the spotlights that's being shed on investor investment. Uh, institutional investors on properties like this. You know, the California Association of Realtors recently reported that they only estimate 15% of Californians, 1-5%, can afford to purchase a home right now. The average home price in California is $800,000 and is $1.2 million in the Bay Area. And in my part of the uh, the Bay Area in San Jose, it's even above 1.2 mil. So when I hear folks say, hey, it's only 500000 or something, I say, oh, that sounds like a steal. But <laughs> But the reality is, as we talked about, they're buying up these smaller two, three bedroom houses that traditionally we view as starter homes. And they're buying them in the greater metropolitan areas like Office Sacramento as now it's coming almost part of the big metro area. But the behavior that we're seeing is the behavior of housing shortage profiteers. They did not create inherently the scarcity. They did not um, do it themselves and they did not uh, create the affordability crisis we have, but they're definitely profiteering profiting off of it. Mm. And I think we have to take a hard look at it. You know, in Congress and in other states right now, they're really looking at hedge funds and other institutional investors, how their effect on the market is looking at. And I think in California, we ought to be looking at that as well. I mean, based on what you said there, I would say you're not saying this is the primary problem. Like for you, the primary problem is this housing shortage. Yeah, absolutely. We have a shortage to begin with. Um, And, you know, I think there's two important things to really know, to note about this. Yes, we have a shortage. And when in, institutional investors are buying up the for sale inventory and turning them into rental, we are 
uh, we're ex exacerbating the scarcity because we're not creating any units. We're not creating more for sale units or more for rental units. You're converting one to the other. I've done bills in the past to combat the other way where we turn rental into um, into for sale flats as well. So you're seeing this gamification of the housing inventory right now. And at the same time too, I also want to note for listeners is that explicitly in California law, single family homes are exempt from rent stabilization and tenant protection laws. That's right. So if you are one of those renters that are using the fancy platforms to rent out single family home, that's awesome. You get to live in a single family neighborhood. But yeah, you can have annual rate increases of your rent 10 or maybe even 100% every year, every lease, and you don't have the same protections. And that's explicitly a carve out from the Costa Hawkins Act from back in the 80s too. So mm -hmm. you don't have the same protections too. So even if you're part of a, a network of homes that's 80,000 strong, that that your home is still kind of treated like a mom and pop uh, shop. Like exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If even if you're renting from just like a grandma down the street who has a second house, or you're renting from invitation homes as ten thousand homes, it doesn't matter because it's the home you live in. It's a home you rent out that affects the legal status you're given. Yeah. Um, do you actually have legislation that you think can get through the, you know, through the state legislature and get signed by Governor Newsom? Like, what do you think are some of the kind of likely fixes here? Yeah, I think in the 2024 legis le legislative cycle, we should really be looking at these issues. And I'm looking at introducing a bill on this very topic. And I think, you know, it's definitely hitting so many different chords and you're hearing from listeners. I think it's passable. Um, people obviously want to be able to make sure their neighborhoods are for new families and for other community members, not just as investment vehicles for other people. And yeah, I think the reality is they might not sell because this is all the economic incentives in California go towards having a large fiefdom. And yes, the vast majority of rental single family homes are owned by mom and pops, smaller landowners, but 1% is a significant, even if you amass that much, it's kind of like the stock market, right? I mean, there's a lot of individual investors who have tiny fractions, but once you amass one or 5% of the stock, you become very, very powerful, especially in the local area. And I think if folks want to continue to have more home ownership and the community and want to make sure their communities have more people um, that have wealth generating opportunities, we have to make sure to really regulate and look at investor, um, social investors when they buy up whole neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, let's bring another call. Let's bring in Brandon in uh, uh, Foster City. Welcome. Hey, you guys. Good morning. Um, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say uh, my two suggestions were one, uh, this is a great example of how the free market, which I hear sometimes people on the right say, oh, does the free market solve all these problems? This is a great example of how the free market is not a solution. It's, it's, a, it's a way for people with capital to make more capital. But my other pro uh, comment is more of a solution, and that would be add a multiplier of the t property tax for each unit of ownership. And if they create and add another LLC to hide their identity, tax like them for additional do the same multiplier effect for each llc additional llc they uh create instead of just the standard 800 i i think mere tiered pricing this last comment tiered means tested pricing should be occurred for all over our society like even a parking ticket 80 dollars is not the same as it is for a, a, a housekeeper earning 70,000. it's 10 times more expensive for her than it is for a hedge fund ma manager getting paying uh earning 700,000. 
and it, it's it's not it, it we should have means tested uh many things anyway i'll take my comment off the air hey yeah uh, thanks brandon appreciate that um trying to trying to get to a property tax-based uh solution here i mean uh assembly member lee like have you looked at that like trying to change you know the way that the, the state would assess the properties of you know institutional investors I haven't looked at that. That's an interesting solution. I don't know if it would run aground of our other very strict tax rules when it comes to property, like Prop 13, but mm-hmm. it's really interesting. I mean, that actually brings out a very interesting point, too, is because when they snapped up a lot of these properties in the 2014 uh, post-recession era, maybe 2012, 2014 era, you know, compared to today, those home prices are much, much, much smaller. And because of Prop 13, they're only paying a fraction of the property tax even assessed to their value today. So that is one of the incentives to keep, to make sure they keep a huge portfolio of inventory too. Yeah. You know, Ryan, I wanted to ask you from your position as someone you know, who's in the real estate industry broadly, I mean, what kind of solutions do you, do you see for this? Well, I, I mean, that's, Partly not my lane, but I do have some ideas. I um, I would say first, I mean, we absolutely need to create more supply, um, maybe allow denser housing uh, with some zoning reform, um, you know, continue to invest in affordable housing of, of any kind. We really need legislators to support that. Um, hopefully, you know, when stuff does come to the table that it doesn't get, um, you know, um, bombarded with CEQA and, you know, development doesn't happen. And, um, one of the big issues, I think, is just the cost of building and permits. I know in Sacramento, um, according to North State BIA, it costs about $100,000 per house when you consider you know, all the fees and, and such. Um, and it, it's very difficult to build at an affordable level when it's that expensive. And so um, I'm sure a lot of people have um, other ideas too, but you know, I'd certainly like to see progress made on creating more supply, um, as well as, you know, how do we how do we have a world where, you know, investors, when they're eyeing that monopoly board where and trying to make it, um, you know, come to reality where, you know, that doesn't happen and your other players can also um, have winnings. Yeah. Alana Samuels, you know, I, I recently saw uh, a study which stuck in my brain, not in my notes, <laughs> that Americans um, think it's like the worst time ever to uh, be buying a home. As you, you know, do economic reporting, I mean, do you see places where that is changing? It almost seems like the real estate spiraling real estate price crisis that we've had here in the Bay Area is now kind of everywhere. Yeah, I would say it's in most places. Um, I think maybe if you move to kind of the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. um, and you don't have to commute to an office or um, you don't need to be near some sort of major transportation or highway, maybe it's a little bit easier. But most of us do have to be kind of in a major metropolitan area. And even really surprising places are really, really difficult right now. Yeah. I mean, what do we what, what do we do with that, though? Right. I mean, it's um, a part of the problem here seems to be that, you know, across a whole bunch of different kind of state policies and local policies, the prices are still going up. Right. And I think when here in the Bay Area, we say, you know, we've had a set of things that we've said, OK, well, here are the problems. You know, we've, we haven't built uh, over the last 50 years. So we're in this huge hole. Um, we don't have land to expand into, we don't, ha- you know, we're missing the, the missing middle. Like we have a whole bunch of things that we've been saying about housing, you know, uh, in the Bay area, but now that prices are going up all over the country, is that indicative that the sort of national housing market is some b- broken in some crucial way? 
Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting is something that really changed with the financial crisis and Great Recession is that renting became a lot more common. You know, I think before there was kind of this stigma against renters and it's kind of mm -hmm. like, why rent if you can buy? And now I think people are reconsidering that and thinking maybe it's better to rent and buy. But I, I don't know if we have the policies in place to really enable mm -hmm. people to rent affordably. Mm -hmm. You know, Section 8 wait, wait lists are, are years long. There's just not a whole lot helping people rent. And so mm -hmm. I wonder if that's one thing, mm -hmm. um, you know, now that we're talking about these single family, rental com single, single family rental companies, are there things we could be doing to make it more affordable to rent and make it easier to rent and make sure that, you know, this, this kind of one stigma um, section of Americans can really continue to have a roof over their heads. You um, you really queued up Assembly Member Lee, who is in fact one of the founding members of the Renters Caucus, right in the in the legislature. You agree with that, I assume? Absolutely. And I mean, this is this is kind of the struggle of our time, where half the population are renters, but there's only five of us renters in the California State Legislature. Five out of 120. This is at the heart of so many issues, right? Yes, we have a true housing supply and shortage issue, and that's where institutional investors like this are preying upon it. They didn't, of course, create the supply issue, but because there is a scarcity issue, they can profit off of it even more so. And I really don't think in any time they're gonna let go of the large fiefdom because you make a lot of money that way. You can make a lot of money that way. And one way to ensure that that transaction is much more fair is if there were rent <laughs> rent stabilization and rent resident protections applied evenly to no matter what kind of types of homes there are. Because like you're right, it used to be in this country, Alana's right, it used to be in this country that it was much more effective to buy than to rent. But now people are left with no option but to rent. And when you have no more options, you really can be exploited. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in another caller. Let's bring in uh, Kent in Sacramento. Welcome, Kent. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Sure, Kent, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, um, interesting program. I just wanted to add, you know, my daughter and her husband have been house shopping in Los Angeles for their first house. And aside from the shock of the expense of the whole thing, the biggest surprise they had was they looked at three homes within a month. Two of the three homes, the sellers refused to take offers from anybody with a corporate identity. Hmm. And uh, so, and, and they were actually pretty happy about that. And, um, and that, that's sort of my comment. The uh, little aside on that is on one of the, one of the homeowners that was selling required the people that wanted to buy the house to write an essay on why they wanted the house. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you're like, am so I applying many... to college or giving you all my money? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they worked, they worked very hard on their essay and they ended up getting the house. So oh, it worked wow. out. That's great. Um, well, Hey, <laughs> thank know, you. My, yeah. My response. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ken. Yeah, you know, it, okay. Brian, it kind of makes sense to me that there would be a response by people. I mean, people who are selling their homes oftentimes care about the neighborhoods um, that they've lived in for however long. And it does feel like, based on some of the calls that we've gotten, that people do have fairly strong feelings about selling to, you know, corporate entity. Yeah, I think it's true. And I mean, obviously, I to comment on the letter, sellers have to be super careful about that said as a non lawyer, but um, you can really discriminate against people and you know, whether you accept something by race, color, religion, sex, I mean, very, very easy to do when someone says, Oh, we're going to celebrate Christmas with our family and hot, hot water. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, 
investors aren't a protected class under um, fair housing laws. And so people absolutely can sort of um, be discerning about what who they sell to. Um, now, in 2012, 2013, it was very challenging to say no to um, a cash offer mm. above asking price. And so, you know, there's that one thing. But I mean, backing up right now, we, we have a really broken housing market. Um, and the problem today is that, um, you know, we had so, we have had so many sellers who are sitting on such a low mortgage rate that they're not coming to the market. Mm. I know in Sacramento, we've had 40% fewer list new listings hit the market this year. And mm. You know, the number of sales is so low, but it's like low demand meeting low supply. And right now there's not a mechanism in place to, you know, dramatically increase supply. And and so we're in a market that feels very broken, very, I think, induced by Fed policy. And so I think there's going to be a challenge ahead for, you know, legislators in particular. How do you unlock supply? And or, you know, is there a tax structure or is there something, you know, to help people sell? Because, you know, we need, um, you know, we need both, you know, buyers, we need both sellers and, you know, sellers are often buyers and, um, you know, just feels like a very broken model right now where it's much more competitive than it should be for how unaffordable it is. Right. Um, for those who've been listening to uh, Ryan Lundquist talk and want to know about the map that he's he's created of Invitation Homes Holdings in the state of California, you can go to SacramentoAppraisalBlog.com. I want to know what the reaction ha- has been as you've you know pushed this map out. You know, it's been wild. I think when it first went out, um, there were so many hours of conversations um, during the first uh, day and very polarizing opinions on both sides. But um, yeah, so far it's been viewed, I think, what, 42,000 times. Um, and I expect that will only go up after this program. But, um, you know, I think it's been, you know, shocking for some. Um, some people downplay it. It's the response has been all across the board. Yeah. Um, Alana Samuels, uh, last one for you. I mean, there are other companies that have been involved um, in this business. Does it seem like, you know, uh, Invitation has sort of maintained its position as kind of the biggest one? Or are there other um, other companies that people might want to be aware of if they're interested in this kind of thing? Yeah, so there's Invitation and there's American Homes for Rent. Um, those are the two really big public ones. And they're both doing pretty well. Um, their, their shares are up, you know, from, from a couple of years ago. Um, and so I think despite complaints, they are still, uh, going strong. Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, thanks so much to everyone who, uh, contributed to this discussion. Again, it's sacramentoappraisalblog.com. If you want to see this map that we're talking about, you can check out your neighborhood if you're there in, in Sacramento. I've been talking about overall the impact of corporate investment on California's housing market. I've been joined by Alex Lee, California Assembly member representing the 24th district covering Santa Clara, Milpitas, Fremont, Newark, and a small portion of Northern San Jose. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us, Assembly member. Thank you. We've also been joined by Alana Samuels, economic correspondent at Time Magazine. Thanks so much for joining us, Alana. Thank you. And leading us off and closing us out was Ryan Lundquist, certified residential appraiser and a housing analyst from the Sacramento area. Thanks so much for joining us, Ryan. Thank you. Been an honor. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Scott Schaefer.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.